You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, July 30th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, my friends. How are you? Good, thanks. Good, good. Hey, wait, where the hell's Jay? Jay is uh, not able to join us this week because he's heavily into pre-production for Ock the Skeptical Caveman, Uh, and then he'll be doing production mm -hmm. on those four episodes over the rest of the week understandable we miss you jay yeah yeah but we're really looking forward to finishing the episodes hopefully they'll be ready to go up on youtube in uh september make sure there's film in the camera <laughs> film what, <laughs> what is, is film? film so steve how the hell was your birthday yesterday uh it was fine thanks for asking yeah. happy, happy birthday happy birthday how old are you uh younger than bob and older Not by than jay. much <laughs> and older than jay okay. that narrows and it old, down and older than dirt you're so still coy. in your Still in your forties. Still in my forties. Absolutely. Three hundred and sixty-four days left to yeah. say that. <laughs> Did you do anything special? Yeah, I had a good evening with my family, and over the weekend we went to see. Uh, the day before is my daughter's birthday. We went to see Matilda. Oh, oh how was it? Yeah, Ooh. by our friend Tim Minchin. The score he wrote the music for it. Very good. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. Awesome. Tim rocks. Yeah, you could really tell his style in the music, but it was excellent. Oh, awesome. Love the whole love the whole show. Tim actually got us the tickets for that show. Otherwise, it's really hard to get. Yeah, it's really awesome of him. He did. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Steve, answer me a qu- answer me a question. I, I remember watching that that uh, movie with my daughter and reading the book. Now, did they play up more th- her? her real intelligence or did they really play up also her her silly ESP baloney at the very end type of thing so she definitely had the magical powers at the end and that was an element of the plot okay however they did emphasize i think through the majority of the of the play they did emphasize her intelligence that she was just a very curious strong intelligent creative girl okay well that's good it's a it's an important part of the story it's not i wouldn't call it silly bullshit it's oh i do i do part of the story that's the story but i don't like that part (laughs) (laughs) because it's not real (laughs) no but i mean you got this you got this brilliant little girl who solves her problems using her mind and then oh i could also use magic to help to help myself kind of it was just a bit of a downer you know it's like oh come on did they really have to because i was having fun even well before the you know that stuff showed up he didn't really need to do it but whatever i could suspend my disbelief yeah but i agree the story didn't need it uh well you know a happy birthday additionally to dr Uh, house today hey i love that show august 3rd 1875 not he's old (laughs) Yeah, not uh, not that Dr. House. There's another ah. Dr. House. Robert Ernest House, born in 1875. Yeah. That what the hell he, he do? is the guy who took the drug scopolamine, was used as a labor drug, like an anesthetic sort of thing. And he's the guy who did some tests and determined that the drug, in addition to being good as an anesthetic, was actually a quote-unquote truth serum. And uh, Uh, he was one of the main proponents of encouraging courts of law and, and, you know, police forces to use the drug on suspected criminals in order to get them to confess to their crimes. And as you can imagine, I mean, his studies were riddled with (laughs) 
problems. Errors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, lo- a lot of it's like, well, you know, we gave the drug to this criminal and he confessed to a crime. So yeah, that's ethical. <laughs> there's, <laughs> let's just put a little put a check mark in the box there. Yeah, so he he was the main guy that pushed for for it to be used as a truth serum, uh, particularly in Texas. He convinced them to use it to determine whether a suspect was guilty or innocent. Uh, which is quite a shame because it didn't yeah. really do anything of the sort. He, he claimed that it, if you gave the exact right amount to someone, uh. then they would be able to hear your very simple question and respond, but they wouldn't have any additional consciousness left over, energy left over to, uh, make something up. You know, they would be too drugged up and they would have to just say a truth. Uh, which is not because uh, because confabulating takes way too much energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and nobody <laughs> nobody who's drugged up has ever said anything <laughs> weird or untrue. Uh, yeah, so it's Coerced it's no longer yeah. used uh, for truth serum around the <laughs> 1950s. It was uh, challenged quite heavily, and there was more research done, particularly by the CIA, and they found that. Uh, house was basically full of it. They didn't find it by tying him up and injecting him uh. with scopolamine. But uh, yeah, they they figured out that it doesn't actually operate as a truth serum. Did it? Did it cause autism though? That's the real question. Oh, God. No, there were side effects, but I don't think that was one of them. I've actually used truth serum one time. Why? On your children. <laughs> no, I used uh, Veritas serum. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> Somebody had to say that. Now, so House was an obstetrician, and he used – he made the original observation that women – they actually used to put women in a twilight sleep, you know, where they were just barely awake while they were delivering, which says something about the times as well. So they would, you know, essentially not experience the entire delivery process. And he noticed, and others noticed, that in this twilight stage, uh, they would often say revealing very uninhibited things. So that gave him the idea that it could be a truth serum. Now, most of you probably know um, sodium pentothal as the truth serum. That's a barbiturate. Barbiturates as a class um, have that effect. They're sedating. Um, they are disinhibiting. They inhibit cortical function. Uh, and in fact, there a version of that, not sodium pentothal, but sodium amytal has been used for quite some time in the medical field for what's called an amytal interview. So we're not using it in order to, to make patients say the truth, but we use it when we suspect that a patient may have a psychogenic symptom. So essentially we give them the, we give them the amytal, we tell them this is going to make your symptom go away. And if it goes away, then it was psychogenic. If it doesn't go away, then it's a real deficit. It's a fixed deficit that just suggestibility alone is not enough to make go away. I actually have only done that yeah. once in my career. I was a medical student at the time. I really was just observing it, you know, as part of the team, but um, it was under the supervision of an attending neurologist. And I was, uh, again, I was just a student. Uh, and I, what, from what I remember, it didn't work at all. You know, the patient that we gave it to had no you know, no change in their symptoms, despite our best efforts to suggest them that it uh, that the medication would make them go away. Is, is that, it is ethical that, to tell a patient yeah. that this is something that's going to cure them when you know for a fact that there's a very good that's, chance it that's won't. wrong? <laughs> well, if if their symptoms are psychogenic, it it will cure them. So from that point of view, it, it's right. Not but I can see telling them like there's a there's a good chance that this will cure you. 
but will that would that work for the suggestibility? Yeah, so essentially it's like using it like a placebo and the, the ethics of deliberately prescribing a placebo yeah. in hopes that you know you'll get a placebo effect or in this case you know eliminate uh, psychogenic illness is is I think ethically dubious because it, it it's tends to violate informed consent and therefore patient autonomy. So it sounds like something house would do the TV one. Yeah. It's probably why um, I haven't seen an Amatol interview done in the last 20 years. You know, it's, it's kind of fallen out of favor. So Evan, you're going to tell us about another way in which scientists are looking for space aliens. That's right, Steve. We've talked about lots of different methods that scientists use to uh, search for things that are way, 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 way out in space. And this time, scientists are taking a method by which they try to locate planets and turning that into a method of trying to locate, well, aliens, alien ships. Professor Jeffrey Marcy from University of California, Berkeley, he's a professor of astronomy, and he's famous for discovering more extrasolar planets than anybody else. He discovered 70 out of the first 100 that were discovered. He is suggesting that we use something called the transit method in order to, well, we use it to find uh, planets that are moving in front of distant stars, a dimming effect as you look at a star, and as a planet goes across its plane, it will actually dim the brightness output of the star for a brief period of time during the transit. He says we can use this exact same method to search for very large ships, spaceships, Death Stars, if you will, or Dyson Spheres, as we've talked about on previous shows, that may have the exact or very similar effect. And it's a very interesting way of going about it, I think. What do you guys think? Yeah, just, just to explain what a Dyson sphere is, that's, uh, I think we have briefly talked about it. There basically are, are an array of solar collectors around in orbit around a, a parent star collecting the massive, massive amounts of energy that, that's emanating from the, from the sun in order to feed, you know, to feed the civilization, which, which I, you'd have to assume would be a, a extremely advanced civilization to build something like that. So those are the kinds of things we, that would be detectable using this yeah. transit method. They admit they don't really know what they're looking for. No, no, I think, no, one example they gave was, uh, a, you know, a dimming of a, of a star. And then uh, at the next go round, the uh, the star would dim for a much longer period of time. So so like a variable dimming. Yeah, that, um, that's that what might, I was about to might, say. So the only thing, right, yeah, okay. the, the only thing they really they're just assuming that there's going to be some anomalous dimming. That's really the, the that's their big idea. They don't know. There's no specific pattern that they know how to look for. And the reason why that's challenging is okay. because they have to write software to yeah. look through all of this data. For, for essentially anomalies, which is harder than saying, look for this specific thing. Like for a planet, they're looking for precise periodicity, but now they're not looking for that. And so they haven't actually written the software yet. They haven't figured out how they're going to do that. I also thought it was interesting that uh, this research is funded by the Templeton Foundation, which is yeah, gen yeah, yes. generally not a fan of the Templeton Foundation because they fund a lot of research into like science and religion. But it's more asking the quote-unquote big questions. So I guess aliens counts as big enough. I mean, it's not as big as God, but I guess it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> Small steps. Unless, unless you worship aliens, there are definitely alien cultures. Aliens, for instance. Aliens, yeah. So Professor, is, Professor Marcy is making the most of this 
grant, this $200,000, and with a good portion of that, he's using the money to pay students at Berkeley who are going to write the new computer programs that will analyze the type of data that's needed for this kind of refined search. And here's the beautiful thing, though. Let's say that the students are able to do this and come up with the computer programs to make it happen. We have... or. Uh, the Kepler telescope has gathered information on over 150,000 star systems in its four years that it's been collecting data. So that's a, that means the, the data is already there. We just need the program to start running through all of this data. Not like we have to launch particularly another telescope or rely on anything more than just the new computer software. So mm-hmm. I think it's a very good use of the uh, of the funds. Yeah, it was a, a big bummer when Kepler uh, was crippled. Uh, very disappointing. Yeah. And uh, in the article, they were saying how some people treated it as like a death in the family, which which you know makes sense because you're you know pretty much your entire career, a big chunk of your career, you're anticipating. Having all you know, having access to this Kepler, and bam, it's like it's crippled. But they did get a great run out of it, and it's nice to know that they've got this huge archive of of data that hasn't been looked at. That and you know, it, hints of not only planets but perhaps even alien civilizations are hiding in there, you know, ready to be teased out. I'm not holding my breath about the aliens, though. It'd be nice. It'd no, be awesome. No. It'd be super cool. But yeah, it's kind of a shot in the dark. All right. Well, Bob, um, this is something that's a little bit more down to earth. You're going to tell us about how we're all going to own a 3D printer very soon. Yeah. I think a lot of you guys would agree with me that it seems pretty obvious at this point that we're we're essentially at the cusp of of world-changing, even people-changing technologies. And some of these, I think we will will see, a bunch of them. And uh, But the more over-the-top, holy crap ones that are kids or grandkids – I think they'll, I think they'll certainly see some of these. And, um, one of the, one of the more near term ones is 3D printing, I believe. And in fact, a new study has declared that 3D printing is ready to explode into mainstream society. And, uh, and I, and I just, I couldn't be any happier about it. I'm kind of waiting for, waiting for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the new study of which I speak is by, uh, a Michigan Technological University researcher, Joshua Pierce. Uh, he wrote an article with uh, his colleagues called Life Cycle Economic Analysis of Distributed Manufacturing with Open Source 3D Printers. That's going to be published in the journal Mechatronics, which I never heard of and sounds Megatronics, awesome, doesn't it? Megatronics, like the I check. I, Megatronics. No, oh, no, Mechatronics. Okay. So uh, he's associate professor, professor Joshua Pierce, and uh, he said, for the average American consumer, 3D printing is ready for showtime. Woohoo! So we have talked about it, but before I want to go, I want to go into why he's so confident. Just a quick little primer on 3D printing. 3D printing is essentially an additive manufacturing process in which the, a digital model is used to direct the, the laying down of successive layers of a material wh- wh- that could be plastic or even chocolate. You could actually use chocolate to make 3D objects, <laughs> which I'm dying to try. And uh, peanut butter. Chug, yes, peanut butter on the inside. This is in contrast to traditional machining techniques uh, that they now call subtractive processes in which material is removed. We're all familiar with it, but cutting, drill, drilling uh, are, are perfect examples. It's funny, uh, uh, subtractive processes are – it's a retronym, actually. They they recently had to create a way to describe it because this new additive process, or relatively new, um, is is so different. They needed a way to, to distinguish the two. Do you guys know when the first 3D printer was created? Give me a, give me a guess. 1983. 1992. Bastard, Rebecca. Was I right? 84. Really? Oh. That was a full-out guess? Awesome. 84. Uh, 84, which was, a, I'll take it. which was a big surprise the first time I, I heard that. So it's been around for a while. 
Uh, but why is the big question is why does Pierce think that we've reached a tipping point now? Um, and you could really boil it down to one word, I'd say, and it's, it's finance. It's financial. Yep. The, the average family can now, apparently, um, right now, save a lot of money printing things rather than buying them like we've done for forever. He performed what's called a life cycle economic analysis for an average American household. So he did this by taking a list of 20 inexpensive common items that you'd see in any house. Things like, you know, uh, like a cell phone accessories or, a shower head or a spoon holder. And uh, so he calculated the minimum, you know, the minimum cost and the maximum cost to buy these guys online, not including shipping, though, because I guess that's that's too variable. Then he determined what it would cost if you made them with a 3D printer. So to buy them, so he, he added up what it would cost to buy all this stuff, and he came up with a range of between, let me see, 312 and 1944 American dollars. So that's the range. That's what it would cost you to get these 20 items. Uh, then to print them, he calculated it would cost only eighteen dollars. I mean, that what a huge disparity. For so all of them. so wow. say you so say you bought a three D printer for a price between three hundred and fifty and two thousand dollars, which is common for for what for what they call the open source printers, the ones that are uh, that you could you know you could download and uh, and put to, put together. I mean you could buy and put together, and then you could you could actually change them. You could do whatever you want with them. Um, and the, the ones that are designed for, to use at home. So further, he also assumed a family, which I think is conservative. He, he, he assumed a family prints, say, 20 of these objects a year. If you put, if you crunch all those numbers, you have the printer paid off in just a few, either, you know, between a few months or at most a few years, which is, which is really impressive. And, uh, and that's only for inexpensive items, right? I mean, those things are, are really cheap. What about, what about, uh, really expensive items? You know, you start printing those things and the machine could pay, pay itself off even, you know, much faster than that. As, as you can imagine, this, this type of additive manufacturing, uh, I think is going to have, and a lot of people think it's going to have quite an effect globally. You know, what, you know, what will be the effect the worldwide, uh, economies when, you know, when an increasing amount of everyday manufacturing and shipping is moved right to the end user? You know, you, you don't have to pay for shipping. Manufacturing is in your house. It's not anywhere else. So obviously, I think three things will become incredibly important. Your printer, first of all, the digital designs, the software, and, and the raw materials. Those things are, are going to be king. And even the raw materials, once, once we, you know, can use really, you know, ubiquitous raw materials, then even that won't be a concern because you could, you know, go dig up some dirt. And use that possibly, or, or or something like that. But that's way, way, way in the future. It is, it is. But uh, but of course, I've got to go now. I've, I've got to go even, even, you know, even farther in the future. Uh, so even this type of additive manufacturing, I think, will be will be relatively fleeting. The next big step is being called APM or atomically precise manufacturing, and that's that's right, nanotechnology. Uh-oh. And um, mm-hmm. and and calling you know Everybody calling this take type a of drink. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> two two drinks. Calling this type of nanotech 3D printing though is, is obviously a joke. I mean, this will manifest itself as kind of more of a tabletop or garage factories, not a printer, but a but what you would you know more aptly call a factory, creating almost anything we buy now, but atomically precise, like incredibly powerful supercomputer laptops, clothes. Medicine, even food and artificial organs. So, uh, so stock up on your nano toner, people, because it's common. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit more about like what's available right now. Like, can I go to the store, go to Amazon.com, buy a 3D printer, and then in six months to a year, it's going to pay for itself, just you know, maintaining yeah. my house? Absolutely not. 
I mean, absolutely. <laughs> maintaining your house. No, I mean, absolutely not. Right now, you you can go on to you know the boing boing market, buy a maker bot or whatever, put it together yourself, get the raw materials, and you can start printing cookie cutters and ball bearings, some really interesting things, but everything will be made of plastic and it will be mm-hmm. low resolution. And, you know, it's not going to be necessarily great. <laughs> so yeah, you're quality, still going to be going like, to Target yeah. to pick up your pasta spoons and your everything else. Well, I'm not you know, so you- sure. So I've been poking around a little bit and I guess it depends on what you're willing to spend up front. The, some of the, if you're willing to spend two to three thousand dollars, not on something that you have to assemble yourself at home, but where you get like a completely made, a little bit higher end 3D printer, some of the, well, Steve, don't forget, I mean, two thousand, two to three thousand, I think would be a really high end open source printer designed for use at home. So you're talking a really high end and that's fine. But don't forget, granted, this isn't going to be as easy to use as your, as your 2D color printer at home. But, uh, and you know, any guy or girl that's, that's fairly handy, could be able to put together some of the cheaper ones that are designed to be, you know, a do-it-yourselfer. It's not you don't need an engineering degree to do it. So I'm just throwing. That All right, out but let me just tell you, like I read a bunch of reviews of people who are buying and using the currently available ones. Just go to Amazon. All right, cool. And so these uh, right now, it seems like most people who are using this are small businesses, schools, offices, or people who have some sort of creative job you know, where they need to make lots of little things. The, the reviews, first of all, are all over the place from this is the best thing I've ever done to this is a horrible boondoggle. Uh, but some of, <laughs> some of the more, I think, thoughtful reviews say that this is still cutting-edge technology. As you said, Bob, this is not like just buying a printer for your computer. You have to be able to troubleshoot, to tinker with it. Even like the high-end printers, they tend to break down after not too much time. You know, like the um, the hoses, the heads, the printer heads could clog. Um, they're still in the process of fixing and tweaking it, you know, in terms of on the manufacturer end. You may need to get some upgrades to, to make it really work right. So it's going to be something that you're going to have to really – you need to be an early adopter tinkerer at this stage to, like, right. really keep this thing working. If it breaks down in three months, then obviously you're not going to make your money back. In terms of raw material, so, like, for the MakerBot, for example – just pricing out raw material, you can get these spools, I guess, of the of the filament that is your raw material. It's thirty eight fifty for one kilogram or two point two pounds. Yeah, it's not bad. You can make a lot of little doodads out of that. I'm not sure how they come up with eighteen dollars in raw materials, but there's also um, even higher end three mm. uh, D printers, ones that use oh yeah, like you basically have this bath of powder and then you use a resin to bind it. It's, it doesn't get laid down like an inkjet printer, but it's, you end up pulling the item out of this box of powder, you know? Yeah, that's a subtle variation. It's more of like a, a fusion type yeah. of, uh, of 3D printer, right? But, that, but yep. there, the results seem much better with those machines. They're, they're pretty strong, high resolution. You get pretty smooth results. Uh, but again, that's probably a little bit too high end for just sort of the average consumer. So here's my bottom line. While I think we're almost there, I don't think we're quite ready to say that the average consumer should run out and buy one of these 3D printers because it will actually save them money. I think we're still in the early adopter phase, but it certainly looks like the economics and the practicability are getting very close. I will say though, the, the reviews did refer to 
thousands and thousands of free online templates, you know, of designs. I think most common objects you can find uh, the, the designs for, the plans for. Yeah, I want to I want to make it clear that I am completely on board with three 3D printing. I love it. A lot of my friends own 3D printers. Really cool. Um, yeah. Well, Mad Art Lab has a 3D okay, printer. Okay. Yeah. So if cool. you guys want something 3D printed, we can make you one. Yes, the database is great and surprisingly easy. It, it's surprisingly easy to take an idea and have it come to life using CAD. You know, it's. It's far beyond the interest level of the average consumer, but even people who aren't accustomed to working in programs like that can make it happen and they can produce a 3D printed object with a bit of fiddling. And yes, okay. the raw materials are very inexpensive. The plastic is very cheap. Um, but yes, they do break down a lot. You do have to fiddle a lot. And again, it's far beyond the interest level of the average consumer right now. Uh, and also, you know, let's say, uh, you're spending a thousand bucks, you know, on a on a printer and the materials and everything. How many small plastic doodads do you buy a year? Uh, well, for me, not a thousand dollars worth. Yeah, I gotta tell me, you, if, no. if you own a, a home, if you own a home and you have a family, a lot. It is my opinion. If you're, yeah. Yeah. It's depending on the state of your home, how new it is. The, you, know, the, you know, do you have a big yard that you need to maintain? Do you have any hobbies? You know, it depends on your lifestyle. Well, I, I could tell you we go through more than a thousand dollars in doodads a year. Of uh, and I'm talking like small, you know, six inches. That's not small. Plastic. What are you saying? sorry sorry i didn't mean to insult anyone Uh, but yeah something that is six inches made of plastic and again not the highest of resolutions and not necessarily the highest quality of plastic i i personally don't i wouldn't spend any money on something like that you know on a regular basis unless it, it was something that i really wanted and so you know so that 3d printing is it's a fun toy to play with for for people mm-hmm. who enjoy fiddling with things like that right now. Yeah, you're right. We we are in agreement. I think what this, this study shows is it is economically feasible. I don't think it's practical because it's too much of a pain in the butt now unless you're again a tinkerer, an early adopter, an artist or whatever. Um but I do think that we are getting close. And I don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but it'll be for that company to make that breakthrough product that sub $1000, which is yes. that magical consumer breakpoint. You know, very easy to use MIC 3D printer. You know, as soon as we come right. out with that, then it'll explode because the economics are already there. Now it's just the practicality, ease of use, initial investment we need to get into the consumer range. And I do think that companies like MakerBot are working on exactly that. Thing. Sure, I, mean, I could, oh my I God, could be wrong, companies. but they they certainly Absolutely. seem like that's what they're positioned to do. So, yeah, I well, hope they do. We'll see. I think we'll see it within I don't know five to ten years. Maybe less, maybe, yeah, maybe a lot less. All right, we have two news items that have to do with the moon. Rebecca, first, you're going to tell us about the oldest calendar ever discovered. The oldest calendar was discovered. <laughs> ever? Ever. And and who's on the pinup? <laughs> it was is actually it a, kittens. Is it a picture of ISIS or something? It was something, kittens or? wrapped in a ball of string in front of a kid. Uh, so it's Egyptian, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Did Egyptians have litter boxes? Something I was thinking about the other day. Well, they had lots of sand. No, they were litter. They were litter pyramids. Ah, yeah. The whole Sahara I, I was a litter box. That's right. Yes, yeah, like, exactly. So the previous oldest calendars, I, 
I think they figured were maybe 5,000 years ago, uh, Mesopotamia. But recently, well, uh, in 2004, a structure was excavated at Warren Field uh, in Scotland. And it was a series of 12 pits. And what researchers have determined is that these pits uh, align with the phases of the moon. And so they believe that this was a very cool lunar calendar. And they're dating this to about 10,000 years ago. So it beats the previous record by several thousands of years. Wow. There are a couple of organizations or universities that have teamed up on this, Birmingham, St. Andrews, Leicester, and Bradford. And all of these guys are saying that um, the pits correspond to different phases of the moon. There's, you know, one for full moon, waxing, waning, crescent, all that fun stuff. And additionally, there's a notch on one of the pits that would enable the hunter-gatherers of the time to align the lunar calendar with the solar year because if you don't do that, then eventually the lunar calendar will be out of whack with your seasons. So they had this extra little thing to help them once a year figure out, you know, to realign the lunar calendar to match up to their seasons. So it's pretty cool. It's 10,000 years old. Impressive. There's a video you can see that the BBC shot, I think, if you go on the BBC's website, uh, where they talk about it and they show the pits, and it, it's all pretty remarkable. Yeah, very cool. And I suppose it's, pr- it's pretty undeniable what the purpose was. It's not just some, some pretty design that somebody <laughs> made. And <laughs> so This kind of looks like that. They certainly, they seem certain, and they are the experts. This isn't yeah, like just I a... Trust them. Yeah, the, I trust this, them. this isn't just some local yokels saying, like, claiming to have the world's oldest calendar and selling tickets to tourists to see it. Yeah, these are archaeologists who are doing serious work and yeah they and it took them you know the past eight years of work to confirm this discovery so i i'd say that at this point they're probably pretty sure yeah yeah it must be very cool for them because now they'll look at that period of time and those people of that time in a real different perspective than they had been all this time up yeah. to now we well, got to remember yeah. people back then were just as smart as we are today pretty much yeah just, just culture that separates us from them and, and we just, know practically nothing about the cultural yeah. lives of, of people 10,000 years ago. So this is a really important look into what they were doing with yeah. themselves. And think about it, thousands of years. Again, the, the human population was small, but over a long period of time, they had to have their Mozarts and Einsteins, you know, could look up at the sky and figure out that there was a pattern to the changes yeah. of the moon, you know. It's not beyond yeah, human and, intelligence and, to figure that out. And I think what's cool is the idea that, I, I mean, I think when we think of hunter-gatherer societies, I at least think of people who are just constantly under threat of death and starvation, you know, and mauling, and that they wouldn't really have any time to consider yeah. the skies, you know, and the bigger questions. Uh, but I think that this is pretty impressive proof that, yeah, they they. They did have that time, you know, the, in between running from tigers well, or whatnot. Well, think about uh, this too. We, we know yeah. that those primitive societies essentially cared for their elders. You know, we we yeah. find fossils of people, even going back to Cro-Magnon man, even Neanderthals, 
where um, the you know older skeletons of older individuals that died long after they would have been able to take care of themselves. So they were cared for by the tribe, and they probably also provided extended family caretaking for children, etc. And they also, since they weren't probably out hunting or gathering, they might have been the ones who had the time to carry the lore for the tribe or to like notice things like the, the patterns of the phases of the moon, for example. So That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, it's not implausible. And I would go so far as to say that because you know the females had more of those closer to the home responsibilities that perhaps they had a role to play yeah. in uh, creating these kinds of calendars. Well, maybe. Uh, that's one of the interesting things is that there there are a lot of anthropologists that are divided on even what exactly the division of labor was and mm-hmm. you know there are hunter gatherer societies today that you know have men and women as hunters and men and women as gatherers so it's difficult to to say that sort of thing but maybe the second moon based news item uh and if you, did you guys see this uh, the uh, report that a study a Swiss study shows that people do not sleep well during the full moon. Oh, gee, I don't know. About 150,000 listeners emailed us about <laughs> yeah. with this particular yeah. story. So it was hard to miss. I did a Google search on lunar cycle and sleep. And literally out of the first 100 links, the first five pages of 20 links per page, only one article was not a completely credulous reporting of this exact story. <laughs> Oh, God. 99 out of 100 were just reprinting Uh. the same story. And this is like every common science news outlet, generic news outlet is printing this story without a hint of skepticism. I found one report from uh, the Wichita Public Radio, and that was the only one that was saying, hold on a minute. This is, may not be, you know, as ironclad as it's being reported. That That's Wichita, Kansas, correct? Yeah, <laughs> that's wi- where Wichita is. I yeah. Guess. Okay, just making sure for our All listeners right. who don't know where Wichita is. Okay, in the heartland. Um, so here's the study. So actually, the study was, what they found was that the researchers were decided to look back at data that was collected for another study on sleep cycles. So this wasn't a study to test the hypothesis that the cycles of the moon affect sleep. It was a reanalysis of, it's just, it makes it weaker because you weren't, it wasn't specifically designed to test this hypothesis. But also the study involved 33 volunteers. So it's teeny tiny. And these were volunteers that were studied at various times, you know, like for three days at a time scattered around the month. So, that's actually not a lot of data points when you think about it. This is really a preliminary pilot study at best. And did the people know that uh, the study had something to do with the moon phase? No, because it didn't, <laughs> because this was a, re- a right. retroactive analysis. They just went okay. back and said, oh, let's just look and see which people were in the study when. And because, you know, we can look back and we know what, you know, we know what, if you know what date that they were studied, you know what the phase of the moon was. And if you look at that data, it does turn out that the subjects who were studied during the full moon took longer to fall asleep, had a slightly decreased total sleep time, and had decrease in the deepest stage of sleep. But here's the other kicker. They were in a lab with light control. So there was no, oh. it's not like the, moon was shining through the window you know they that's what i thought they, they were no no they were not exposed to the moon and and while they were in the lab they really couldn't know what the phase of the moon was unless they just happened to to be tracking it or paying attention to it 
this leads to the question, well, if this effect is real, which this study is not powerful enough to establish that this is real, I mean, until this gets replicated in a prospective manner, you know, where this variable is specifically being controlled for, you don't, you have no idea whether this is a real effect or not. But let's say if, if this could be real, what would be the mechanism? And the answer is we don't know. Gravity. Yeah. Right. No, like, um, I think the fact is there is no known mechanism by which yes. humans have a lunar cycle. That's not the same thing as knowing that there isn't a mechanism, but, you know, not having a known mechanism at this stage of our knowledge, yes. is, you know, it makes it even more suspicious. Again, Absolutely. doesn't make it impossible, doesn't rule it out, could be something unknown. And it's not due to light if it's, if it's, um, if, it, if the effect occurred inside a light-controlled lab, the most obvious mechanism that it's just how bright it is outside, which we do know that our brains can respond to light levels, at least in our circadian, our daily rhythm. Um, so that would be the most plausible mechanism is not compatible with this study. But it just it was disappointing. This, news outlets love to report this study. There's just something about this study that, that they thought was really sexy and interesting to report and just sort of took it at face value without pointing out the obvious limitations of this study. It's small size. Even the researchers are like, hey, this is preliminary. Until it's replicated, nobody knows, you know. You know, I know I, I made this point previously, but I think there are some studies that are below the threshold where the mainstream media should be reporting it as fact. And this study is way below that threshold. This is, you know, the kind of thing that should be in the technical literature and maybe of interest only as a source of later research. But now people are going to think, oh, the moon affects your sleep. And it's going to be one yeah. of those memes that gets into public yep. consciousness. It'll yep. be there a hundred years from now. And it's based on nothing. Yes. Yeah, the 10% of your brain yeah. uh, problem yeah. that we have. So, it, so it's cultural. I mean, it's got to be cultural. They're, whatever fascination reporters or whomever well, yeah, the, in our society yeah. has with some, with things like this. There's already this pre-existing cultural belief in a lunar effect, you know, the full moon effect. Mm -hmm. So this is playing off of that. Yeah, this isn't in a vacuum. And of course, you know, for the, you know, for those who need to hear this, there's been plenty of research over the years showing that essentially there is no lunar effect. Uh, there is no increase in arrests, ER visits, births, you know, take your pick. The things that people think happen more frequently during the full moon, if you actually look at it systematically, there's no effect there. It would be unusual if, if this turned out to be true. So if someday somebody replicates this study, be interesting to see it. The other thing is, you know, there's all the generic reasons why preliminary small studies like this uh, are not reliable. I, you know, don't really know how many, how often have people decided to look at the data in their study to see if there was a lunar effect on sleep and they didn't find anything. So they didn't report it. I don't know. Ah, maybe, right. maybe zero, right. maybe 20. Who knows? You, you can't know that. And I don't, also don't know how many different ways they chose to look back at their data until they found that, oh, there's, there was a, a statistical effect. So there's that researcher degrees of freedom effect that could possibly. Yeah have manufactured this positive result. So until we get some some actual replications, again, those additional reasons why we should be suspicious. All right. Well, Evan. Doctor. It's time for Who's That Noisy? You had a very perplexing puzzle last week. As some people found it perplexing. I will re recant it again for those of you who have forgotten. Recount it. Re can I not recant? Well, you can no, recant, recant it. No, would mean I have to take it away, yeah. right? So thank you, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Here we go. You are a detective with a specialty in deciphering coded messages. 
During an investigation, you stumble upon a piece of paper which reads 0.7734,57718,37818,51,3718, period. And then the last line reads 173. So being the world-class detective that you are, you have immediately decoded the message. Therefore, what is the message? And the answer is? Ah, the answer is, it reads as such. Hello, Bill's Bible is bile. And it's signed, Eli. Now, how do you figure that out? Well, if you were like me when you were a child and you got your first calculator, one of the fun things that you did with your calculator is that you would try to look for combinations of numbers to punch in, and then you would turn the display upside down to see if you could get it to make some kind of word. So if you were to take these number codes, each one a word at a time, punch it into your calculator, turn it upside down, it would reveal the hidden message for you. Uh, So it's the old upside-down calculator trick, uh, for lack of a better term. Did you guys ever do that as a kid? I I did it. Yeah. (laughs) On a regular basis, I have fond memories of doing so. Just boobs. Yeah. Yeah, boobs. That was the big one. And hello. Yeah, hello. Hello was, yeah. And I think that's the first one for those of us who did this as a kid or more recently as adults. Uh, realized that the 07734 is the hello and probably picked up on it easily. Uh, so there were tons of correct answers. So I like that our audience is a calculator-friendly audience. Uh, but there can be only one winner on any there given can week. Be only Josh, one. Ba- <laughs> Josh Bailey, you are this week's winner. Congratulations. Well done for figuring it out. Good job. All right. Excellent work. You have something interesting for this week, I trust. I do, yes. A classic Who's That Noisy? And let's play it. Here we go. Cool. Very cool. So obviously we have some sort of rhythm occurring, some sort of drum beat, but I would like to know exactly what's, what is being drummed. What is creating that noise? Ooh. Interesting. And you're going to email your answer to us at WTN at theskepticsguide.org, or you're going to post your message on our forums, sguforums.com. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. So Jay is going to join us for just a few minutes to talk about how the new ox shoot is going and about our new membership structure. So Jay, you're on set right now getting ready, doing the final pre-production for Ock the Skeptical Caveman. Yeah, it's almost uh, dark out, and we've been going nonstop for four days in a row, just getting all the final prep stuff ready. I'm like so exhausted, it's unbelievable. But it's going really well. Um, we have uh, Phil Hudson and Joe Bellucci helping us uh, prep. We are, you know, doing set dressing and that, you know, been to Home Depot twice and that, you know, just ran the staples and it's insane. It's insane. Like it's like planning a party that you're going to throw with 40 people for four days and they last all day. So yeah. just imagine the logistics. Uh, but we're having a blast. And I, I treated myself by eating a whole pizza last night, so I feel great. <laughs> Was there bacon on the pizza? Very important to know. 
Uh, no, there wasn't because there, I, there was pepperoni in the way, so don't worry about that. So, Jay, uh, we're going to get our listeners caught up on the new website and the new membership structure. We've been working on the website for, for months. We're, we just launched it a couple of weeks ago. We have a new membership structure. You can go to our homepage, theskepticsguide.org, and click on Member Subscription, and you will see there are 10 different subscription levels that you could get. If members uh, subscribe at the what we call the Rebel Scum level, the $4 per month, then you get discounted admission to Nexus, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. And uh, we are going to start sending out an email, a regular email, to our members. This is something you'd have to opt in for. We're not going to send you spam. Uh, just, you know, updates on what we're doing, upcoming segments or interviews that in, in coming weeks, maybe foreshadow movie reviews that we'll be doing or whatever. We'll, we're going to experiment with that, make it something fun. Now, at the damned dirty ape level or higher, <laughs> love it, which is $8 a month, then you get access in all of, all of the above plus access to premium content. This will be 10 to 20 minutes per week of extra content that we'll be generating and putting up on the members only page of the website. But also, some of you may have noticed that in the last few weeks, we have been having some advertisements on the SGU, and this is a new venture for us. Uh, we're doing this to, to obviously to generate revenue so that we can expand our activities. We could do more skeptical outreach, um, do more projects. We have a lot of projects that we have planned that we're trying to do, but we're completely limited by uh, time and resources. So we really hope this is going to increase the amount of skeptical outreach that we can do. Now, some of our members have asked uh, a couple of things. One, can they pay to have an ad-free version of the show? And two, what would it take, how much member support would we need for us to remove ads entirely from the show? So what we're going to do is if you uh, are a, a member at the Damn Dirty Ape level or higher, then you will have access to ad-free versions of The Skeptic's Guide. You'll have access through a uh, an app that, that we're writing. Jay, the app's going to be ready, what, in like two, three weeks? Yeah, I'd say safely. Uh, it'll be ready in a month. Yeah. It'll be on iPhone and Android, and it's going to be a companion to the show, so you can download the show directly to your phone, and then you're also going to be able to get some other content. We'll be adding things to it as time goes on as well. But the real cool thing is that you're going to you're going to be able to, if you're an SGU member, you'll just be able to get your premium content downloaded directly to your phone um, and the ad-free version of the podcast. Yeah. That's going to be a month, so don't, you know, please understand, you got to wait. We're, we're in, you know, in development right now, but that was our solution that we just finalized, and we now know that it's in the works and it should be uh, it should be up really soon. Yeah, so the, the app is going to be a lot of fun. Now that the website is done, our programmers are able to turn their attention to bring that to fruition. It's actually mostly done, but, you know, it takes time to completely tweak it and get it ready. Um, so, yeah, well, we're going to add the ad-free version of the show to the membership premium content. In addition, because several of our members asked us what would it take, so we decided to figure out what it would take. If 4% of our current listenership uh, becomes a member of the SGU at the damn dirty ape level on average, uh, then we will completely pull ads from the show. So just 4% of our listeners need to become members, and then we'll do that. 
So that puts it entirely in the hands of our listenership. That would be a cool thing anyway, because then it would really allow us to dramatically expand the, the projects and the stuff that we're doing. And we really do seriously have a lot of stuff on the table that we would love to do that it will just take resources to do. Once the Oc the Skeptical Caveman web series is in the can, we already know like the next dozen things that we'd like to do in terms of video production. And also Steve and I have been working on a, a very top secret project that we're hoping to uh, to present at next year's TAM. Um, and I will give you one clue of what that is, and I'm just going to mention a name, and then if you want to figure it out, let's see how far you can go. But the clue is Gary Kazeel. <laughs> and yeah. real quick, just to clarify, when Steve mentioned uh, the Rebel Scum and the Damn Dirty Ape, you have to go to our members page uh, and see that all the different levels that we created for our members. So at a particular level of donation, you're given a title. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to have those titles be uh, usable in our forums. And I'm going to talk to uh, our forum about having the ability to have like special icons for people that are at a particular donation level. But ultimately, guys, like the real thing is, is like I'm standing on a production set that is 100% the creation of the SGU right now because of donations from you. The skull, you know, this came from the Kickstarter campaign. It was a success, and you know, I'm about to shoot four days of SGU content with 40 people, and you know, it's one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life, and that's you know, direct result for uh, not only of your generosity but of your desire for us to create more content. So we just want to keep doing this, and if you're interested, and if you feel like you've enjoyed our podcast over the past eight and a half years, you know, get on there and, and help us continue to create our product, our product. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people say they, they love what we do. They, they're, you know, they thank us for everything that we do. So if you want to help us take skepticism, skeptical activism to the next level, please consider stopping by the membership uh, subscription page. Take a look at the fun levels that we have there. And also if you have ideas for fun stuff that we could do to, uh, to, give back to our members at different levels or ways of using the uh, the membership titles let us know send us suggestions send us ideas you know, we're we're definitely up for doing for doing fun things all right jay we'll get back to work and i guess i'll be seeing you on set tomorrow i'll see you at 6:30 a.m. you got it bye bye we have time for an email this week this email comes from dave martin from toronto he writes Toronto in the universe. Thanks for that clarification. And <laughs> Dave says, Hi, I wonder if any of you saw the article on fizz.org on the hybrid origin humans. I co-host a fledgling podcast and we snagged Dr. McCarthy to talk about this, his hypothesis a couple of weeks ago, and I still don't know what to make of it. I started out thinking it's an anomaly hunting, that it's not science, that he must be a crank and that it wasn't really appropriate for an article on Fizzorg. And talking to him and reading further, I'm still not convinced. I do know one major issue is that he needs to create a test that would falsify his claim, but I'm afraid it's a little out of my expertise as a filmmaker when he brings up the silico-chromosome painting as a possible but loose test of the hypothesis. Dave goes on for a while here, but are you guys aware of uh, the what I'm calling the man-chimp-pig hypothesis? <laughs> yeah, ba basically that the similarities between pigs and humans points to... Uh a hybridization event in, in our distant past and that we're an early pig and an early human, you know, clearly not human or pig, but an, you know, an early, an earlier version of us, chimp. uh, somehow, yeah, chimp it had little babies and, uh, and that explains that's, 
the you know the most reasonable explanation for these uh, congruencies. Right. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I just don't know why it just can't be congruent evolution. I mean, he's got. I mean, to me, that seems the most obvious explanation for the similarities. Do an experiment. I mean, make a zygote. If, if he really believes this is possible and that two disparate species can produce a, you know, viable offspring, and yeah, there are examples in, in nature of, of animals producing young that you wouldn't think would be able to do it. And he points to the platypus and how the platypus has avian and mammal parts of its genome and things. And sure, but I mean, if that's really a viable option, I mean, make a zygote. Throw an egg and sperm together from two different animals that are different enough and prove that that they uh, c- can produce a viable zygote. And, and, and any of the uh, the ethical issues really is not an issue, I think, if, you, if you're just making a zygote. I mean, you're not, you know. Well, it depends what state you're in. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so I think that he's a total crank. That's yeah. my opinion. Wow, total crank. Yeah, I mean, come on. So the guy is actually a serious researcher and a specialist in hybrids, but he is totally off the deep end on this one. He thinks that a chimp and a pig had you know, mated, had offspring, and that that led to humans. Because, you know, we look like half pig, half chimp, right? I mean, it's obvious. You look at a human being, you're like, hey, that's a half a pig, half chimp. So it's just <laughs> ridiculous. And I know he says back hybridization, that the offspring then back hybridized, back to the chimp over and over and over again. That's why we're mostly chimp, but there's a little pig in there, and that explains all of these uh, morphological similarities between humans and pigs that humans differ from other primates. So, But his reasoning is massively flawed, massively flawed in my opinion. First of all, he says, we all right, humans might be hybrids because of our low fertility rate, because hybrids have a low fertility rate. Um, so... So do we have other large mammals. Yeah, so we like really. Elephants? So we have a low fertility rate. Even I, I don't accept that premise, or that there's something abnormal, quote unquote abnormal, with our sperm. No, our sperm is just different. So I just don't. I don't accept the premise that humans are a hybrid because our sperm is different and our fertility rates are allegedly low. That doesn't follow. So there's a massive leap right there. Then he says, okay, now taking the premise that we're a hybrid, <laughs> what species, if you look at all the differences between us and our closest relative, the chimpanzee, and you think, all right, what species has all of these traits? That's how he gets to a pig. The, the, the massive flaw there is the assumption that if we weren't a hybrid, that there wouldn't, you wouldn't also be able to find ah, some yes, species yes. that had a lot of the same features that we have in terms of like the structure of our kidneys, for example. What he's looking at are, are traits that are very amenable to convergent evolution. Most of the differences are not specific details of morphology, right? So the way you know the difference between analogous and homologous traits, traits that just look similar versus traits that share a common ancestor, which is what he's saying, is that there are specific details that are in common that do not directly relate to function. And therefore, the best explanation for why those details are are similar or the same is because of, of common ancestry. He hasn't really established that. He's, it's, he's looking at things that are essentially coincidences or circumstantial evidence or could easily be explained by just these are traits that get evolved in multiple disparate lines independently over and over again. I did read a good analysis on skeptophilia. Uh, the author is an evolutionary biologist, and he made the point that most of these, these the alleged similarities between humans and pigs are have to do with the amount of something or the size of something. 
you know, a, uh, variables that easily can align just by coincidence and that are very are, are amenable to selective pressures and, and again, don't necessarily point to common ancestry. And then, you know, you read this guy, Dr. McCarthy's article, you read his defense of his position, and it's filled with a lot of people who disagree oh, yeah. with me are being closed-minded type of arguments. You know, he's really uh, the defensive. Red yeah. flags. Yeah. The other bottom line is, is that there is, there isn't a single documented case of a hybrid between two different orders, a primate yeah. and a non-primate. Doesn't exist. This is, would be a massive, massive new biological phenomenon that he is just taking for granted. And again, he, and he's responding to skepticism by saying, Oh, you're just dismissing something that you don't already know to be true. No, it's, we're being skeptical of something that is not known in nature. You're, this is a, a, a extraordinary claim, and your evidence is circumstantial. It's the definition of a crank. It also has, you know, you know what other alleged theory about human origins this reminded me of? The aquatic ape. Exactly. The, this is the aquatic ape all over again. Yeah. It's just building a circumstantial case out of cherry-picking superficial similarities without having the actual smoking gun evidence. And then he makes this hand-waving argument about why we wouldn't necessarily see any DNA evidence. Like, shouldn't we have bits of DNA from a pig? And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, hello. He says, well, no, because of all the back hybridization to chimpanzees, you know, the number of bases would be very little. It's like, well, it'd have to be enough to be responsible for all of this morphological similarities you're saying are homologous to a pig and not just analogous. Uh, So you can't have it both ways. You can't say we Mm -hmm. have all this this pig morphology, but we don't have any pig DNA. No DNA. Come on. And what about all of the pig inclusions and junk DNA type stuff that would be littering our DNA if we – you know, we're a hybrid with a pig at some point, you know, just 8 million years ago or something, or less than that. You know, we would be riddled with the the DNA telltale signs of our pig ancestry. Trying to argue that, oh, that maybe the DNA evidence wouldn't be there is really absurd, in my opinion. And, you know, he's also saying that, well, we haven't specifically looked for pig DNA in the human. It's like, okay, you, that's that's true. I accept that premise that no one has specifically went looking in human DNA for pig DNA, but th- that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have found anomalies that don't fit our primate ancestry. And also, if that's your position, then go find the freaking pig DNA in our DNA. Exactly. You know, and yeah. until you've done that, no one really should take you seriously, in my opinion, because your hypothesis is so far out there. And you, you really, your chain of argument is really weak, given the massive, extraordinary claim that you're trying to lay down here. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed with the, the Physorg uh, website. That, yeah, uh, that that was really pushing this, mm. and even I think they did that. That they did a follow up on it as well, and it was very. What did they even talk to an evolutionary biologist? And I'm sure he would have brought up a lot of the points you did. It just yeah. seemed lacking. You think this guy really just wants to fuck a pig? <laughs> Why did you call me a pig? I, I know I, I had thought about that too. <laughs> because you pigs. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> it sounds like it's a sophisticated form of pattern seeking or pattern recognition. Sure. Yeah, it's anomaly hunting, and then you just yeah, just coincidence seeking, and then confirmation bias. Yeah. Oh, and if you were to put in apes and pigs 
into Google. I know I received a lot of hits that came up with Mohammed Morsi. He was the former Egyptian leader of Muslim uh, Brotherhood when he referred to Jews as descendants from apes and pigs. So that's a interesting. Note there. Yeah. Jimmy Kimmel made fun of this story and he made the yeah. point that but what would you call a hybrid pig and a chimp? A pimp? <laughs> <laughs> Good writers over there. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thanks, Dave. This was a an interesting item, and I guess people can listen to your podcast, the Interrupting Cow Podcast, where you interviewed McCarthy. I'm sure that will make for interesting listening. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or fakes, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have three regular news items this week. Coming off a sweep last week, we'll see how you guys do this uh, time. That was tough. Stop. All right, here we go. Item number one. A new report details the case of a patient who developed synesthesia following a stroke. Mm. Item number two, a recent study finds that psychotherapy over the Internet is as effective as face-to-face therapy and possibly even more effective. And item number three, a new analysis finds that the average person is host to almost 1,000 different parasite species. Evan, go first. Regarding the patient who developed synesthesia following a stroke... I would not be surprised if this one were true. Not that I know much at all about strokes, but uh, lots of things do get reported about people who have suffered strokes. They can speak new languages or they can, you know, whether it's correct or not. I mean, we are talking about just a report here. So I'm leaning towards this one being science. The next one about psychotherapy over the internet as effective as face-to-face therapy and possibly even more effective. I have to think about why this would be even more effective. The barrier of a computer, I guess, could give people a certain level of comfort. And depending on what is wrong with them, a face-to-face confrontation could, in some cases, be more anxious, a source of anxiety to the patient. So I'm leaning towards perhaps this one being science as well. The last one is the analysis about the average person host to almost 1,000 different parasite species. I know we have parasites. We've got lots of them. But 1,000 different ones. Average person. Huh. Maybe not. Maybe it's not that many. I can see in some parts of the world where certain conditions under which they have to live could cause a person to be become subjected to to lots of these parasites, but maybe in uh, other more remote areas, uh, colder climates, for example, perhaps parasites may not have as much of a chance to survive, and therefore you wouldn't have that kind of exposure. So I don't think that has to do with the average person. I think it's, you know, geography dependent in some degree. So I'm going to say that that one, parasites, is the fiction. Okay, Rebecca? These are tricky because they're all reasonable. I... Synesthesia after a stroke, yeah, like Evan says, there are so many cases of people being drastically altered in interesting ways because of a stroke. It alters your brain, and why not? could definitely mix up signals in a way that would be considered synesthesia, so yeah. Psychotherapy online, as effective as face-to-face again? Yeah, of course, why not? Um, I... 
Uh, I agree with Evan. Again, like it, it seems like having access online could be better for people who don't want to go out and, you know, have anxiety issues. Psychotherapy is based on, on talking, not on touching or anything that would necessarily require face to face interaction. So yeah, sure. So yeah, that leaves the, thousand different parasite species, which again, it sounds reasonable to me because I I know that we are supposedly more made up more of other species than we are human, right? But that is, I guess, the least believable one. Maybe it's, maybe it's not quite a thousand, maybe it's a hundred. So yeah, I'll, I guess I'll say that that one's the fiction as well. And Bob. So, um, yeah, on the surface, these seem kind of reasonable, but some, I think, much less so than others. Um, the thousand different parasite species. Yeah, that seems like a high number. And I'm kind of surprised that I've never, in all my readings, never encountered that little factoid. But, you know, I can go either way. I, I could kind of make an argument for very few parasitic species coexisting with us or, or, or even a thousand. So I'm not sure about that one, although it does seem a little high to me. Um, the psychotherapy one. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it is more of a talking thing and not a, uh, a tactile relationship. But, um, there is a, um, you know, there is the, uh, the body language. That kind of feedback, I think, could be important. But then again, on the other hand, somebody on a computer may, might be a little, feel a little bit more freer and, and more revealing than, you know, than if they were in a room with somebody. So I can kind of justify that. The one I've got the biggest problem with is the, uh, the synesthesia one. To me, that doesn't make much sense because when I think of a stroke, you know, strokes can, you know, kill a portion of the brain causing a deficit. It just doesn't make sense to me that a stroke can cause that kind of a reaction. Uh, to me, it, it seems to be, it seems to need to be something that you're just born with and how your brain develops and not like a knockout phenomenon that would, that would, uh, that would cause it to happen. So for that reason, I'm going to say that the stroke one is fiction. Okay, interesting. So you all agree uh, that number two is science, that a recent study finds that psychotherapy over the Internet is as effective as face-to-face -face therapy and possibly even more effective. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Yes. No, no super for Steve. No sweep this week. <laughs> Better luck next week. <laughs> so yeah, this is an interesting study. This one comes out of the University of Zurich, and they did two groups uh, pa treating uh, patients with depression with psychotherapy, one face-to-face, -face, one over the internet. And the study involved 62 patients, so just barely big enough to, to take it seriously. <laughs> what, and what they found, 50 is kind of like the traditional cutoff, but Still, it's a small study, but the, but not not too unreasonable. The treatment consisted of eight sessions, and they looked at both you know, short and long term outcomes. And in every outcome, the group that had the online therapy did a little bit better. Not statistically significant. That's why I said had to say possibly. So a little bit better than the face to face therapy. The study was designed as a equivalency study or a non inferiority study as we say. In other words, they were just trying to show that online mm. uh, therapy was not inferior to psychotherapy and the study was powered and designed to test that hypothesis and that's what they found that it's not inferior, but it actually did do a little bit better, but again not statistically significant, so we can't conclude that it actually is better. 
So that's very interesting. And you know, you can, yeah, you could make sense of it either way that, you know, the, there is something about the personal presence and the face to face interaction that's a little, you know, has more gravitas. But at the same time, maybe people might be freer over the internet. It's interesting. Ironically, I also came across another study, not related to this, but looking at um, people who are applying for a job and some companies will allow you to do the interview like over Skype, you know, do the interview online rather than face to face. Mm. And interviewees who did online interviews were rated lower and fared worse than people who did in-person interviews. And they also had a lower estimation of the person doing the interview. Hmm. That they were less attractive, less competent, whatever, less friendly. Wow. So again, these are just two one-off studies. You know, you have, you have to look. Obviously, you know, this is we're at the very early stage of online anything, so this all needs to be studied much more. And we may be looking at different slices of a more complicated overall social phenomenon here. But it is interesting that the bottom line is this: so far, this isn't this isn't the only study to look at online therapy. That seems like a very viable option. Absolutely. And, you know, the convenience, of course, is huge. And also, you know, one of the biggest expense for the therapist is the office, you know, is is paying for the office or renting an office or whatever. I mean, imagine if you could just do it out of your own home. And also the person doesn't have to physically travel, you know, to go to the therapy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as computer technology gets better, you know, having a decent webcam, decent computer, you know, and, and audio... It's certainly that that virtual presence is getting better and better. Seems like it's already at the point where if you're mostly talking to somebody else, that it's it's perfectly fine. Hey, and, and imagine how it opens up uh, both ways. You know, a pool of doctors for the patients and the pool of patients for the doctors. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You could, you could have a you could have a world class psychologist treating you from the UK. You know, uh, yeah. or, or in Australia. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. help with people who specialize particularly in, in specific conditions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is under the bigger rubric of telemedicine. Yes, you know mm-hmm. where you can have an expert provide their expertise remotely anywhere in the world as long as it doesn't require their technical, physical presence like doing surgery. Although, of course, robots ha. are making that yes. possible too. I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's, I'm not sure that we're quite there yet with, uh, with robotic surgery. But um, if, if just your eyes are needed or your ears and, and not your hands, then you know, doing it online is, uh, is perfectly fine. I know it's you know, standard procedure now for, for example, radiologists can you know, be at home getting, you know, downloading their x-rays and MRI scans and CAT scans. They read them at home. Do the re- They don't need to physically be present in the hospital to be reading a computer oh, screen. Yeah, yeah I very- suppose not. Unless they have super high-resolution screens that they rely on that they can't use at home. But I guess that's not the case. We do. But I'll tell you, like, 10 years ago, the, you know, you had, like, the radiology reading rooms had these super high-resolution monitors compared to like what most people had in their home. These nice big monitors, like with multiple monitors connected together. Not unlike what I'm looking at right now while we do this <laughs> podcast. But now again it, it is actually feasible, plausible that if you're a gamer, you have a you have probably have graphics <laughs> capabilities that are equivalent to what is being used to read MRI scans digitally. So yeah, that's wow. no longer a limitation. It's it's very cool. and, and bandwidth is such that again it's not a limitation. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to number three. A new analysis finds that 
The average person is host to almost 1,000 different parasite species. Evan and Rebecca think this one is the fiction. Bob thinks this one is science. And this one is... Say it! The fiction. Oh, oh mother Sorry, Bob. Uh, he said it. You asked him. <sighs> Sorry, Bob. Yeah, so Rebecca, you were dead on. The true yes. number is 100. I'm, wow, Man, Rebecca. today is my day. I'm going to go yeah. play some 1984 poker. and 100. Uh, You're all over the numbers tonight. This was inspired by an article, an interview with a parasitologist who was saying, he's making the point that, and I tried to see if I could make this into a, a actual science item, but it didn't quite work out. His point was that parasites may actually outnumber, in terms of the number of species of parasites, not the number of individuals, but the number of, spe- of animal species that are parasites may outnumber the number of animal species that are free living. So if you, if you look at, um, recorded known species, the ratio is 60-40 free living to parasites. So there are 60% of known species are free living. But he said that the number of parasites are hugely underestimated and that he believes that that number is much higher and that in fact there are more parasitic species than free living species. But that was just his guess. So I couldn't wow. really use it as the science. But he also makes the point that for example, humans have a hundred parasitic species that are, in fact, specific to humans. So right there, it's a hundred mm. to one. So um, if that's sort of really? true, generally speaking, that most you know animal species have lots of parasites, and there's got to be more parasites than free living species. Yeah. If that if that is is typical. Cool. So he thinks that as we investigate hmm. parasites more, that that ratio will shift significantly. Uh, it's a, like it's like the bacteria thing, you know. We're so large mammal centric in our view of ecosystems and life, when actually most things, most life on the earth are bacteria. Most species are parasites. You know, just they're the things that we don't relate to, we don't think about. All right, let's go back to number one. A new report details the case of a patient who developed synesthesia following a stroke. That one, of course, is science. Bob, you make a good point, but you're missing the fact that he developed it following the stroke. It wasn't the immediate effect of the stroke. So the, this is a patient who developed synesthesia recovering from the stroke. And which does make sense because what happens is Why? the brain the brain plasticity is kicking in, the brain's trying to heal itself and it uh, basically got its wires crossed while it was while it was healing. Okay. Yep, yep, the, I see it now. Th- this is only the second reported case though, so it's not common. It's so I wasn't def- so I wasn't that wrong. Yeah, it's definitely – you weren't You're that wrong, but you were wrong. Only two. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, only the se- only the second case. And in this case, the guy um, can taste the color blue Ooh. and – What's it taste like? Raspberries. Raspberries. You read the article? <laughs> no, no, it's just that <laughs> – No, it tastes like raspberries. Well, Man, we are on fire. You know. <laughs> uh, what are you guys, psychic? That's uh, well, it, Evan. We- Blue, that, blue raspberry is the color of, you know, candy raspberry. Anytime that something uh, yeah. Yeah. in the Evan, candy yellow, world, Evan, blue. Rebecca, Powerball, give me numbers right now. <laughs> 2, 11, 14, 29, 37, <laughs> but, 52. Negative 1. But, but <laughs> colors also give him emotional responses. So yellow gives him a mild disgust response and blue gives him an intense disgust response. And, oh. and when he listens to brass instruments in the... High range, it gives him ecstasy. 
awesome. But in the tenor range, it takes it away. God, you know what songs I'd have in my uh, my library. Um, especially the brass theme from James Bond movies elicited feelings of ecstasy <laughs> and light blue flashes in his peripheral vision. But music played by a euphonium, a tenor-pitched brass instrument, shut down those reactions. Very cool. interesting. Yeah, kind of bizarre-ish. So, uh, yeah, synesthesia is when one sensory perception or modality is perceived of as something else, like seeing numbers and feeling colors. and Seeing numbers. Or, you know, <laughs> like numbers I have having... synesthesia. <laughs> like numbers having a texture, you know, yeah, yeah. or... A fuzzy, fuzzy eight. Or, or an emotion attached to... Something that, you know, that's not inherently emotional, like color. The ecstasy response, you know, I wonder how addicted to that he is. You know, he just like oh listen to God, James right? Bond music all the time. Yeah. And, and would it attenuate after a while? Jeez. Yeah, you wonder. Most things do, you know, attenuate after a while with repeated stimulation. And also wonder if this is a temporary phase and oh. will eventually, will it eventually go away as his brain continues the healing process or is this just permanently badly wired? Hmm. All right. Well, good job, Evan and Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. So Jay is not with us this evening, <laughs> so I am going to cover the quote. Luckily, our, a very helpful listener by the name of Nick Tiller sent in a skeptical quote. This comes off of the Philosophical Society webpage at, guess what, philosophicalsociety.com. And the Philosophical Society says... Why should anyone bother to study at least a little logic to sharpen the mind in a world saturated by streams of propaganda and advertising to know when a pitchman is conning you when some expert or pundit is propounding a dubious doctrine when someone is making an apocryphal claim about miracles or divinity or the afterlife to chasten one's own thinking to develop an appreciation for tenable arguments and a respect for good reasoning to become more adept at solving problems, whether they're encountering encountered in business, science, politics, or the law. Very nice. That's uh, from the Philosophical Society. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is basically skeptical philosophy. You learn philosophies so that you could be more skeptical of yourself and others. Very cool. nice. Thank you, Nick. Well done. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you, Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.